So I'm in the middle of transforming the lesson uh, from uh, the series I started out, The Greatness of God, to I think I told you that a college uh, law school professor friend of mine suggested that it would be a little snazzier if I would instead ask the question, is God guilty of fraud? Because in legal circles, fraud is a misrepresentation that is made to try and induce someone to rely upon that misrepresentation. And the question arises, how do we view God when God says he's a God of love and yet we see his hatred of evil? When God says he's a God who uh, uh, is one and yet seems in some fashion to be three? When God says that he's a God of compassion and forgiveness long-suffering, and yet he rains down condemnation on Sodom and Gomorrah and tells the Israelites to go wipe out every man, woman, and child in Ai. When God says, I'm with you always, and yet our children say to us at an early age, why don't I see God? And the world may tell us. I had a professor that uh, uh, um, taught an anthropology class. This is not at my Christian school. This is another school that I went to. And, and, and he said to me, I was meeting with him in office hours. And I said, is it okay on the exam if I write that the professor taught Blah, blah, blah. Because I can answer the question. I know what you've taught. I don't agree with what you've taught. So I don't want to speak of it as factual. I just want it, but I don't want to get a bad grade. And he said, wait a minute. Why don't you agree with what I taught? And I said, because you've taught that there is no God and I believe there's a God. And he said, oh, give me a break. Are you one of those? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, okay, well, I'll tell you what. If there's a God, then make him show himself. Why don't he just show himself? Shows himself, I'll believe in him. I said, well, actually, and he said, no, no, no. No, don't give me those lines. He said, let me get a hammer, and I'm going to hit you in the head with a hammer. And if there's a God, he can stop the hammer from hitting you in the head. Would you be willing to do that? And I said, no, that's not the way God has set up the world. You hit me in the head with a hammer, and if I'm alive, I'm going to prosecute. <laughs> then I finished with that and went and dropped the class. <laughs> True story. But this is the question. God says he's everywhere. Where is he? I want to see him. Is he guilty of fraud? Well, this is where we need to do an investigation. Now, so this is what we're really targeting here. We're trying to go down and, and look at the foundations of our faith. 
I want us to look at conflicting truths. I want us to examine not just as believers, but is there any way that we can look at this and, and, and build and rebuild and come to some type of a solution to a lot of these inherent problems? Do we need to change our opinions for this, for that, or for the other? How do we do that to come up with a belief system that makes sense? I am absolutely convinced that Christianity offers a belief system that makes sense of the world. It makes sense of me. It makes sense of my thoughts. It makes sense of Scripture. It makes sense of those who don't agree with me. I understand why they don't agree. I do not believe that Christianity is something that is nonsense. That is something with conflicting stories. I Spoiler alert. I don't think God's guilty of fraud. I know he's not. But these are issues we need to explore. These are questions that we ought to be asking so we can find the answers. And if people are watching this on the internet or if people are in here, and some of these are questions you've had in your mind, these are legitimate questions. And asking the question is the first step to understanding the answers. So three weeks ago, we started this class with the idea of where is God? Why can't I see him? Because it's three weeks ago, I want to give you a little bit of a refresher. Plus, Brent's statistics indicate that we have about a third of people who come on different Sundays. So maybe a third of you weren't here three weeks ago. Between the two, we got to cover a little bit of ground. It'll take four minutes. You might recall this video. Folks forever have been looking for God. They've wanted to see God. They've tried to find God. They've looked everywhere for God. And that's, that's, a, that's something we're hardwired to do. Our brains are oriented towards finding God. Because we're made... To be in a relationship with him. And when we are not, we look for him as certainly as a plant faces the sun and grows towards it. And so we discussed how it is that we look for God and what are the belief systems that are taught in scripture about where we find God. The most fundamental premise that we discussed is the idea that there is a, a universe or maybe multiverses that exist in nature. This is the material world. This is matter and antimatter. Dark matter. If the string theory is right, these are the strings. These are the atoms. These are the subatomic particles. 
all that exists, it is all part of what we can call nature. But the scriptural teaching is that God is above. He is supra or super to nature. He is beyond nature. God exists as an entity, a being, quite apart from all of the physical nature there is. That is why God is called supernature. Bro. God is supernatural. He is beyond nature. The big theological word for that is God is transcendent. He transcends. He exists above and beyond all that's there. I got to see three of the cross children this morning. Two of them have grown up significantly since I last got to talk to them. But they are at an age where they study in, in, in school, or they may be homeschooled right now by Amy. No, they're in school right now. And, and, and they study the material world. They'll be studying whether it's plants and trees, or whether it's, it's animals, or whether it's chemistry, for at least maybe one of them at this point. You, you, you study these things about the world. God's beyond all of that. God exists totally independent of that. And that's who God is. So God is above or super to nature. He's supernatural. He's transcendent. In a sense, God made this entire universe like a watchmaker makes a watch. But there's a difference. God made the watch, but that's not all that God has done. There was a popular philosophy when, when science was unfolding in the intellectual revolution of the industrial age. As science was beginning to understand some fundamental aspects about nature. Philosophy and science converged on something called deism. And it was the idea that God made the universe like a watch and then he's just... Watching. That's deism. But that's not biblical. The Bible says the first half of it is true. God made the watch. But he's not apart from the universe. Only. He is outside of the universe. He is transcendent. But he's also imminent. Big word? It's not a big concept. Eminent means he is, he's, he's, he's here. He's present. He's in the moment. But in a theology sense, it means that God is what's holding the universe together. The universe exists in a sense, independent of God, but not independent of God. Without God holding it together, it would not exist. So God didn't simply set it up, and now he watches from a distance. God is still hands-on with the universe. Paul said it this way in Colossians. By him, all things were created... 
in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And here's transcendence. He is before all things. Before any of this stuff that is was is. He was. Let me say that again because it doesn't sound right grammatically. Before anything that is, was, is, he was. He was before everything. So he exists transcendently, independent of everything. But in him, all things hold together. He didn't just make the watch. He's holding the watch together. And without him, the watch doesn't exist. And the pieces fly apart or cease to be pieces. And so we get that idea that God is not only transcendent, but God is also imminent. He's within that universe, holding it together. Now, there is a third place to find God, according to the Bible. Transcendent, beyond our nature, natural Holding our natural together, place two. Place three, God is omnipresent. Omni, Latin for all. Present, present. God is everywhere. If I had had enough foresight, I'd have changed the lyrics a little bit and gotten Phil Keggy. To do the Johnny Cash song. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere. Oklahoma, Mississippi, Tuscaloosa. Everywhere, man. I've been everywhere. Because he's everywhere. I love this passage out of the Psalms. Where shall I go from your spirit? Psalm is saying, okay, where do I go to get away from God? Where can I flee from the presence of God. I could go as high in the sky as possible. God's going to be there. I could go as deep in the earth as possible. High in the sky they called the heavens. Deep in the earth they called Sheol. The way they understood the world to be made. The psalmist. That's what he thought. Or she thought. I could go to the depths of the earth. God's going to be there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Okay, cool. Let's do it. We got people on the Elmo? Oh, yeah. Look at that language. Wings of the morning. Wings of morning. Furthest most reaches of the sea. Sounds poetic, right? That's the kind of verse that you read over and you just keep going. Because you don't really stop to think about it because it doesn't really just... 
I mean, the point is God's everywhere, so let's keep move on. But this is like a biblical literacy class, so it's worth looking at. What's he talking about? Easy. So this was the world of the psalmist. Let's zoom out a little more. This is the world of the psalmist. And they had uh, the Nile Delta down here with the Nile. This is uh, Egypt, right? Y'all following me? Okay, do you know where Israel was? Israel's right over here. Okay? Now, I drew this right. So which way's north? If that's north, this is south. This is east. This is west. Do you know what this thing is here inside that green circle? That's the Mediterranean Sea. And we know what it is. And we know how far it goes. And we know where it dumps into the Atlantic. But they didn't. Now, what the writer is saying is, if I'm standing here in Israel... Where's the sun come up? Yes. The sun rises in the east. And where's it set? And do you know what's out there? No one's ever sailed to that location where the sun goes down. They just considered it the furthest most part of the sea. Where that sun met the sea. Because that's what it looks like if you're standing there on the coast. It looks like the sun finally goes down and kisses the sea. And so what the psalmist says, if I were to go on the wings of the morning to the furthest reaches of the sea. From where the sun comes up to where the sun goes down. If we go back to the passage. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me. If, if I decide, okay, I'm going to hide in the darkness and I say, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to hide from God, I'm going to escape his glance, I'm going to get in a really dark place. Turn out all of the lights. For God, that does nothing. The darkness is not dark to him. The night's as bright as the day. God's everywhere. You got it? So within the framework of this last week, we talked about how there was a very early story in Genesis about the Tower of Babel. And it was a story about humanity trying to build a magic place almost. A tower, a ziggurat, where God would come down and eat the sacrifice. They could command the presence of God. It'd be outstanding for the local economy because they could sell ziggurat keychains. And you can just see their thinking. And they are, it's going to be like God's a genie. And he'll show up and grant wishes. We're going to build this place that gets God to come to earth. 
and do our beck and call. Wouldn't you love that? And God says, no, not happening. So God's not the genie, but that doesn't mean God didn't come to earth because he did. And he does come to earth and is present in earth today. So that's what I want to look at. Let's look for the fingerprints. Let's look for the evidence. And it shows that God came in a unique way in Jesus. But it also shows that God still indwells people through and the church through his spirit. And let's consider each of those in, in due course right now. So we'll start with the first, God comes in Jesus. Paul said it this way in a letter to the church in Philippi, that Christ Jesus was in the form of God. Now, but that word form in the Greek doesn't mean form in the sense of, um, um, you know, I could, I could draw on, on the Elmo um, yeah, it's, let's try it. So I can draw on the Elmo some water drops. And that's the form of water. You see it? Water drops. That's in the form of water. That's not water. Now, what I've got in this here bottle is also in the form of water. There you go, Brent. Catch. <laughs> in fact, it is water. The Greek word form doesn't mean it looks like it. It's shaped like it. It means it's it. It's in the same form as God because it is God. This is in the form of water. The liquid in here is in the form of water. It's that sense of the word. Not the sense of shaped like it. Kind of like it. You with me? John wrote it this way. John said, if we go back to the PowerPoint. John said, uh, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Make no mistake about it. He was in the beginning with God. He was part of God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And the word, what I'm talking about, John says, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory of the only Son, begotten of the Father. So, full of grace and truth. This is, Jesus is God. You want to see God? You see Jesus. Well, that's not very good for us because he's gone now. Well, read about him. And if you're going to, my suggestion for this morning is don't start your reading in the New Testament. Start it in... The Old Testament. Let's start your reading with Genesis 12, 17, 12, or 20, Genesis 28, 12 through 17. This is one of my favorite stories. Genesis 28, 
12 through 17. Let me give you the background. Abraham came from Ur to Haran. From Haran, he gets sent by God to Canaan and told, here's where you're going to dwell and your children and your children's children uh, forever and ever. And Abraham goes out of faith. He has a son, Isaac. His son, Isaac, has two twins. But they were not identical twins. They were about as different as left and right are. The oldest was Esau, a man's man in that day. And by that I meant in that day, the man was someone who was um, hairy, athletic, uh, smelled. uh, um, um, You know, you say, well, where does it say he was athletic? He loved to hunt. And you didn't hunt back then with a a deer rifle that sighted in to the exact number of yards that Bambi's dad will be eating from the deer feeder. So you just line him up in the crosshairs and go plink, one bullet, one buck, you're done. No, back then hunters actually had to go hunt. They had to shoot bows and arrows and throw spears and chunk rocks and things of that nature. Build traps. So that's Esau, his brother, a mama's boy. His brother liked to cook, wasn't so hairy, and liked to stick around the house pretty close where it was a little bit safer. His brother Jacob, whose name meant deceitful one in an idiomatic sense, his brother, this, this, this brother Jacob, the mama's boy, he and his mom devise a way to trick the dad and deceive the dad into giving him his birth, the older brother's birthright. Older brother gets upset. Older brother goes on a rampage. Older brother says, I'm going to kill you. Younger brother flees. Does the exact opposite of Abraham. Abraham in faith goes from Haran to the promised land. Jacob, in fear, leaves the promised land to go back to Haran. He's going backwards. And while he's on his way, he dreams. And behold, there's a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending. They were going up and down. And behold, Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, actually grandfather, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I'll give to you and your offspring. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. You'll spread abroad to the west, east, north, south. And you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I'm with you. I'm not going to leave you until I do this. And look at verse 18. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely God is in this place. I just didn't know it. You want to see God? He was right here. And he was scared. He said, this is awesome. This is none other than the house. Hebrew word for house is bait or beth. It looks like beth for us. They'd say bait. Of God. Hebrew word for God is El. Beth El. This is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took a stone that he'd put under his head and he set it up as a pillar and he poured oil on the top of it and called the name of the place Bethel, the house of God. Now that's a pretty good story. I love that story about Jesus. 
Jesus. Yes. See, Jacob goes on to get his name changed by God. God changes his name to Israel. So he goes from being the deceitful one to the father of the nation. And when God does this, or makes a later appearance, he says, I am, when he appears to Jacob, I mean to Esau, I, uh, to Jacob, I am the God of Bethel, whom you anointed a pillar, where you anointed a pillar, and made a vow to me. Now, if you were reading that in Hebrew, do you know what the word anointed is there? It's Messiah. Mashiach. Messiah means anointed. You anointed, you messiahed a pillar there where you said, here's the presence of God. This is where God descends from the heavens to the earth. In the Messiah location. And so the house of God, Bethel, this ladder unto heaven, is that. Now, that's Genesis 28. That's one part of it. The other end of it, the fuller story, is found in John 1, 43 through following. So here Jesus is calling his apostles. And Jesus, in calling his apostles... Decides to go to Galilee. He finds Philip. Says, follow me. Philip from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip finds Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel's name means the gift of God. God's gift. So, Nathan, L, gift, God. So, here is God's gift. Philip finds Nathanael and says, we found him who Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Now there's plenty of prophecies about Jesus in the law. But one of them is the story I read you about Jacob at Bethel. That is in the law of Moses. The first book of the law is Genesis. The law includes those stories. The Torah does. Jesus, he says, we found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Austin? I'm Nazareth, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Texas beat my Lipscomb guys in the NIT final. And I know you're saying, well, what's the NIT? But um, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Now picture this. Jesus sees Nathanael coming towards him and Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. Nathanael said, how do you know me? I mean, this is a Twilight Zone episode for him. Jesus said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Or orao in the Greek, the word saw means to perceive also. I, I, I read your mind. 
I saw, I saw what you were thinking. Nathanael said, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Now, I would suggest to you that Nathanael had been spending some quiet time under the fig tree. And he had been reflecting upon the story of Jacob, the deceitful one. And how Jesus, God had changed Jacob's name to Israel. And Jesus says to Philip, back when you were under the fig tree, I perceived what you were thinking. You were thinking about Esau and Jacob. You were thinking about Jacob, Bethel, Messiah. You were thinking about these things. And so when I say an Israelite in whom there is no trickery or deceit or God, he's saying an Israelite in whom there's no Jacob. And it's because he understood what Nathaniel had been thinking that Nathaniel's stunned. And he's like, how did you know? You're the son of God. How did, how did, no, how did you know? And Jesus is back when you were under the fig tree. That's where you were thinking about it. I, I perceived it. And that's why Nathaniel says, okay, this is amazing. You're the son of God. Nobody can read minds like this. And then Jesus says to him this, verse 51. Because I said I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You're going to see greater things than this. You're going to see the heaven opened like Jacob did. And the angels of God ascending and descending like Jacob did. On the Son of Man. You're going to see the real way that God comes to earth. You're going to see the real bridge between this world and God's. You're going to see it in Jesus. On the cross. The bridge that spanned God's eternity. With the natural world in which we live. That's just one of many ways, but you can see God came in Jesus. But it's not only there, God also indwells through his spirit. So for this passage, I want to go to John 14, 16 and 17. This is where Jesus is about to leave to go to the cross. He's having his final supper. He's had the final supper. He's having his final dialogue with his followers. And he says to them this, I'll ask the Father, he says, I'm going away. I need to go prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. But don't worry about it. He says, and I'm going to, if I go away, I'm going to ask the Father and he's going to give you another helper. Another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. The world can't receive it. Him. Because it doesn't see him. It doesn't know him. You know him because he dwells with you, but he will be in you. He dwelt, the Spirit dwelt with the apostles because the Spirit was in Jesus. And Jesus was dwelling with them. But Jesus says there's going to come a day where the Holy Spirit's going to be inside you. And he's coming as a helper. That Greek word helper is a fantastic word. 
it looks, uh, parakletos is the way you, you would say it, or it looks in English like parakletos. I was having trouble finding a good picture for the Spirit of God as that. And uh, Brent very kindly sent me one. And the parakletos that Brent sent me was a little bit off of what I was thinking. I appreciated the parakletos. But uh, those cleats are not the ones. It's actually pronounced kletos. So for Brent, we needed to take him back to Greek school and go ahead and look at parakletos. Parakletos is a compound word. It's put together of two Greek words. Para means next to. Kletos from the kaleo means to call. So a parakletos, a paraklete, is someone who's called to be next to you. Someone who has a role next to you. And we don't really have a good way to translate that with one word in English. So different versions use different words. Um, some versions, I think the English Standard Version uses the word help, helper. Because someone who's called alongside you can be someone who helps you. Like someone who pushes a wheelchair or someone who opens the door or someone who uh, helps uh, uh, the, the, the Boy Scout who helps the little old lady across the street. You know, that's someone who's a paraclete, to someone who's called to help, called alongside you to help you. Another way to translate it, though, is the word uh, comforter. Uh, the idea of someone giving comfort because you have someone next to you, someone who could say to you, uh, uh, you know, my, my wife lost her mother, uh, uh, her mother passed away uh, two weeks ago, and, and she had many paracletos, many friends who came up and, and got next to her and hugged her and said, how are you doing? I love you. I'm praying for you. May God comfort you. You know, those types of comforters. That's, that's the same word in the Greek. It's the same idea. Someone who stands next to you to give you comfort, to give you help. It's the same word also for a lawyer. An advocate could be called a parakletos. Someone who advocates on your behalf, who stands next to you and says, Hey, I'd like to speak on behalf of my client or on behalf of my friend. It can be a counselor. It can be someone who's next to you giving you counsel. The Holy Spirit is all of these things. The Holy Spirit helps us, comforts us, advocates for us before the Father, counsels us in life. That's all part of what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus said in the same passage, the Holy Spirit will convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment. You know, a lot of people wonder, gee, do I have the Holy Spirit? Have you, have you, have you embraced Jesus as your Lord? If you have the answers, yes, you have the Holy Spirit. You can't do it without it. Unless you have Him, the Holy Spirit, unless you have Him, you can't have Jesus as Lord. He is, it is the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, who will convict you of your sin and the righteousness that's in Jesus, who will bear witness to Jesus, who will glorify Jesus. So where is God? Where do we find God? Well, you find God in Jesus. You find God present in the Spirit. You find God outside of the universe. You find God inside the universe. You find God everywhere. That's where God is. Is, is God guilty of fraud? Absolutely not. So here's our take action steps for home.
First of all, I want to see God as God. Um, the, the passage in John where Philip said, come and see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. I want to hearken to the call of the Spirit. I want to read about him. I want to study him. I, I, I want to think about him. I want to chew on it. I want to pray. I want to see him. Um, Dale Hearn, are you here today? Dale says, don't ever rush the points for home. Give me one extra minute because I want to say something. Um, I was uh, speaking Friday night in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I was um, talking about a passage in the Psalms. And the passage says that in righteousness we'll see the face of God. You want to see God? Grow in righteousness. And make it a litmus test for what you put before your eyes. And what you do. Say to yourself, gee... I can get on the internet and look at junk I shouldn't be looking at and have a dimmer view of God as a result. Or I can make another choice and I'll see God more clearly if I make the righteous choice. Gee, I could trick someone, cheat someone, maybe get more money in my bank account. Or I can make the righteous choice and I'll have a better vision of God and I'll see God more clearly. Those are the choice, the implications of the choices we have when we choose righteousness. I can gossip. It's a great story. It's going to sound so good. People will listen to every word I say. Oh, and I can soften it by saying, don't tell anybody but... Or I can decide not to. And I'll be more righteous and I'll see God's face better. Those are the choices. I want to see God. Next, I then want to glorify him as God. It's that passage we did last three weeks ago. To the king of the ages is the good example to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And amen. I want to see God, and I want to bring him glory and praise and honor. And then our third one, I want to welcome his spirit. I want to seek his spirit to lead me, to guide me, to counsel me. He says, I'm going to ask the Father. He's going to give you another helper to be with me. Not today only. Not right now only, but forever. Forever. The spirit of truth. Not deceit, not fraud, not trickery. Truth. And that's what I want in my life and I want for you. God bless you. I'm excited about Palm Sunday next Sunday and excited to teach next Sunday. Can I bless you now and thank you for letting me keep you an extra minute. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to bless us. Convict us of your truth. Father, may your spirit dwell within our hearts and give us comfort and give us help, but also give us conviction, give us courage, give us direction.
Grow us, Lord. Take us to a place we've never been before with you. Open our eyes to see you more clearly. Clean out our ears to hear you more directly. Soften our hearts to obey you more readily. This is our prayer in Jesus Christ's holy name through whom we pray thee. Amen. Amen. See you guys. Thank you.